Uh, so Titus chapter 2, verse 11, 12, 13, 14, that's today's passage. I'm going to read it, and we're going to get started together, okay? Here we go. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Father, thank you for this, uh, this power plant, this engine, this um, motor, uh, Father, that drives us uh, toward becoming more and more like you and less and less like us. And God, I pray that that would happen this morning. God, help us, help us to grab onto the truths of this passage and to, to live them out. Lord, help us always to be looking back to the cross and looking forward to your coming. And Father, I pray that those, those two appearings, God, would drive us to be sanctified, uh, to become like you. Father, help us. Be with us. Be near to us. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so last week, one of the things that I think we established early on in the message was that those who are joined to joined by faith to the resurrected Jesus Christ, anyone who is a genuine Christian, anyone who genuinely believes the gospel, okay, who trusts Christ, follows Christ, they will be practically transformed in their everyday life. Now, I think we've kind of seen this through the whole, whole series in Titus. Um, remember back at the very first, first sermon, first verse, Titus chapter 1, uh, verse 1, Paul is telling us about his own life and his own mission, and he talks about how he's a servant of God, an apostle of Jesus Christ. This is the first verse in the book. He says, For the sake of the faith of God's elect for their, and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. So knowing the truth, believing the truth of the Scriptures brings about godliness. Okay, Anybody who professes to know God but whose life is unchanged by the gospel, Anybody who professes to know God but who lives in habitual, unrepentant sin, they are denying Jesus Christ with their life. Okay, that, that, That's one of the messages of Titus is that if you are saying with your lips, okay, you're saying with your lips, I believe Jesus is the Christ, but you are denying him with, their li with your life, with your words, you're saying, I believe. With your life, you're saying, I don't believe. You've got a serious problem, okay? Titus 1.16, last verse in chapter 1, says they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works, okay? Don't let that be you. Don't, don't, let, don't let that be you. Don't, don't be the person who says with your mouth, I believe, and then with your very life, with your very living, you say, I don't believe. And, and then... The rest of chapter 1 and really a lot of chapter 2 that we've already been through, Paul gets super practical, right? 
Super practical in what does this transformed life look like? What's it look like for leaders, right? In, in chapter 1, verse 6, he talks about being above reproach, uh, being, being a committed husband of one wife, and having children who believe, you know, leading your family well, uh, not being a, 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 a quick-tempered, arrogant, drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. And then last uh, couple weeks, we looked in chapter 2. What does it mean for older men? Well, they ought to be sober-minded and dignified and self-controlled and sound in faith and love and steadfastness and what does it mean for older women and you know we, we went through these very practical um what does this mean for us okay and this is huge basically what paul is describing is an army of transformed sinners who are saying with their very lives jesus is alive and he is reigning at the right hand of god now Today, I, I think this passage, verse 11, 12, 13, 14 of chapter 2, I think it serves a really strategic how, okay? So, so all right, let's lay this out. So, so first of all, principle, right? If, if, if you believe in Christ, if, if you truly are following him, then your life's going to be changed. It's going to be changed in these practical ways. And now today is the how. How does that happen? Like, what's the practical engine that makes that happen, all right? So for weeks we've been looking at, if you believe the gospel, you'll, you'll put on self-control and you'll stop gossiping and you won't abuse alcohol and you'll be committed to your spouse and you'll lead your children well and you won't be angry or greedy or quick-tempered and, and you'll love and serve others well, but how, right? How, like how, how, how does this happen? How does it, what does the Holy Spirit use to make this happen? And I think this verse tucked right in the middle of the book of Titus is the power plant of the Christian life, all right? Now, it's beautifully laid out between two appearings of Jesus Christ, all right? So go back in your text and notice verse 11, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, all right? Now jump ahead to verse uh, 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So in this verse, in this passage, there are two appearings, all right? Two appearings. Now, what is an appearing? Well, actually, the, the Greek word is epiphano, which I think is where we get our, our word epiphany. I'm, I'm not totally sure about that. I'm, but I'm, I didn't look it up, but I'm pretty sure it is. And, and epiphano is a, a, a providing of illumination, all right? So, so think about this. Jesus Christ is the Son of God. He's the second member of the Trinity. He's the ruling, reigning king, the creator and the sustainer of the universe. But that is somewhat hidden, Right? There are billions of people on the planet that don't believe that. They don't see that, all right? And, and so when Jesus, 2,000 years ago, when he parted the heavens and he came down in the form of a baby born of a virgin in Bethlehem and grew to manhood and lived a perfect life in three years of ministry, what was he doing? He was revealing, right? He was appearing to the world, right? And then after Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, he ascends to the heavens, sits at the right hand of God, but he's coming back, right? That will be his second appearing, all right? So, so at the heart of this passage, at the heart of how do you live the Christian life is you're living between these two appearings, okay? The first appearing of Jesus Christ when he came in Bethlehem as a baby, grew to manhood, lived the perfect life on our behalf, and then died on the cross paying for our sins, was buried in the grave, rose from the dead, ascended to heaven. He sits at the right hand of the Father right now, and he's coming back again, which will be his second appearing. Let me show you how these words are used. 
um, in the scriptures. So if you just turn to the, the, the book right before Titus, it's 2 Timothy. And in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 10, okay, it says, Which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior, Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Okay, That's talking about his first coming. All right, If you turn the page... Uh, it is in my Bible anyway, 2 Timothy 4, verse 1, he says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is the judge, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, okay, go, go down to verse 8, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but all who have loved his appearing. Okay, I, I just want to, I want you to see how this word is used. This word appearing is used as the revealing of Jesus Christ in his first coming, and then also in his second coming. All right, now the first appearing of Jesus in verse 11, you'll notice is described as the grace of God. Okay, so verse 11 says, for the grace of God has appeared. All right, let's, let's talk about grace for a second. What is grace? Well, okay, grace is when God pours out his riches, his power, his kindness. He, he extends that to man free of charge simply because he is magnificent. Okay, that's what grace is. Grace is you didn't earn it, you don't deserve it. God just simply dumps his, his riches, his mercy, his kindness, his glory into your life simply because he is awesome, okay? That is grace, all right? And Jesus is the manifestation of God's grace, all right? Jesus is the extension. When God was give, being gracious to us, how did he do that? When God was pouring out his riches, how did he do that? When God was saving us, how did he do that? He sent Jesus, right? Jesus is the extension of God's grace. You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You're without hope, destined to be judged for your rebellion, your rejection of God, your breaking of his commands, and God gave grace. How did God give grace? He gave his son into the world. Look at verse 14. Verse 14 says, who gave himself, this is Jesus, for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. God gave Jesus in order to redeem us. The word redeem means to buy out of slavery or to buy out of death, okay? So Jesus purchased us, he bought us, he paid a ransom for us with his own blood. God, God sent Jesus to pay for our sins, to bring forgiveness to us, to make us righteous, that he might, what, what does verse 14 say? That he might purify us, he might make us pure with his own blood, and then he might make us zealous, that means enthusiastic, for good works, all right? Now, Many of you are very confused about grace, possibly. I, I hope not. But there are a lot of people in our world that are confused about grace. Whenever you tell somebody God has been gracious, God, God is a God of grace, he has extended his grace, God has, has poured out his riches free of charge. Okay, a lot of people are like, free of charge? Okay, that means I'll do whatever I want and just take it. Okay? Listen, grace does not teach you to treat sin lightly. That is, that is a distorted version of cheap grace. Uh, and, and really, I can't believe that so many people have latched onto it. I can't believe that so many people are, are walking around saying, well, you know what, I, I, it's fine for me to sin. It's fine for me to live unrepentant. It's fine for me to be directly disobeying the word of God today because God's a God of grace. Man, we don't do that in any other area of our life, do we? I, I mean, how many of you, if you go to Sunday school and someone comes over to the table you know, and, 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 and pushes their wife off the chair, you know, and says, I can't believe you didn't give me a donut, woman. 
And then, you know, someone's like, hey, dude, calm down. And the guy's like, it's okay, she's really gracious. Are we okay with that? It's all right, she'll forgive, she's super gracious. Man, someone would be kicking him, wouldn't they? Like, yeah, like, that doesn't fly. So why in the world would, would we think that somehow God's grace gives us this license to treat him with disrespect? I mean, that, that's, that's utterly ridiculous. God's grace does not teach us that sin's not a big deal. God's grace doesn't teach us that we can continue in sin and, and, and be connected to Jesus. It doesn't make excuses for sin. In fact, what this says, look at verse 11. The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all people, training us. To renounce ungodliness. You know what the word renounce means? Say no to. You see, the grace of God teaches us to shout no to sin. Now, this first appearing of Jesus was in humility, right? It was in meekness. Jesus came to go to a cross, to die, to make atonement. Okay, the first appearing came, and and notice what verse 11 says, the grace of God has appeared, Jesus came, he appeared bringing salvation for all people. Now, please again, don't don't be tripped up for all people. Some have taken this, everybody's always, there there are always going to be false teachers, we've we've looked at this already in Titus, there's always going to be people trying to twist and distort the word of God. Please do not think that all people means that, that Jesus came, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, so that means that everybody is saved. All, all 7 billion people on the planet automatically going to heaven, automatically forgiven. Uh, it, it does not mean that. Obviously, it does not mean that. Why, why would I say obviously? Well, the whole rest of the Bible, okay? Matthew seven twenty one says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who's in heaven. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 8, 9, and 10 inflaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might when he comes on that day to be glorified in his saints, to be marveled at among all who have believed. All right, so Again, and I, and I could have chosen a hundred verses. I picked two, but I could have chosen a hundred that are very clear that some will not believe. Some people will go to their grave saying, Jesus is not a big deal to me. I'm going to make my own way. I'm a good person. I'll handle it. People are going to go to their grave and they will, they will perish forever in hell. So we know that all people doesn't mean all people are going to be saved. So what does all people mean? Well, it means that Jesus is the grace of God for all people. Not just for Jews, not just for Romans, not just for Americans, not just for men or women. or child, For all people everywhere, right? Remember what God promised Abraham? He said, through you, there's going to come one who's going to bless every family on the face of the earth. Uh, Coming up on week four, you're going to memorize this verse, Revelation 7, 9. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. The Bible says over and over again that there will be people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the planet who will come to to worship Jesus Christ as king. 
All right, so all people means every, it's got access for everybody. Jesus is, is the Savior for all. His perfect life and sacrificial death are sufficient for all, extended to all, available for all, but applied only to those who believe. You know, it's really interesting that, um, I mean, that, that may seem like obvious to us. It's not obvious to everybody. I, I, I've been in North Africa before talking to Muslims, and, and, and literally the conversation went like this. Well, of course you're a Christian. You're from America. I, I'm a Muslim. I'm from North Africa. In, in other words, in their mind, well, you know, Jesus is just, he's just for you guys. But, but Allah is for us. Muhammad is for No. I, I, I've, I've talked to Hindus before. We're like, well, I'm, I'm a Hindu because I'm from India. And, and, and all Indians are Hindus, you know? No, no. You see, what, what, when Paul says Jesus, he, he, he came for all people, it means his salvation is available to all. But only applicable to those who believe. In 2 Timothy, or I'm sorry, 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10. Listen to this verse. 1 Timothy 4, 10. Because we have set our hope, we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, so extended to all. And then look what he says next, especially those who believe, right? So you must believe the gospel in order for Jesus' grace to be applied to you, right? So that's his first coming, right? Now, what about his second coming? Well, his second coming will be very different from his first coming, all right? His second coming will be one of glory. Look at verse 13 in your text, okay? waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. All right, so in verse 11, it says, the grace of God has appeared. In verse 13, it says, the glory of God is going to appear, right? The, the, the second coming is gonna be one of glory. It's gonna be one of radiance. It's gonna be one of consuming power, of sovereign reign and rule. Jesus came the first time in Bethlehem in a stable in a manger surrounded by common shepherds. He will come the second time with a sword and an army. Revelation chapter 1. Listen to John's description of the glory of Jesus Christ. Revelation chapter 1 verse 13. And in the midst of the lampstands, one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe, with a golden sash around his chest. The hairs of his head were white, like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were as burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. And his voice was like the roar of many waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. And his face was like the sun, shining in full strength. In his second coming, here's what people will see. Revelation chapter 19, verse 11. Then I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and the one sitting on it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them. 
with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty on his robe and on his thigh. He has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's the way he's coming the second time. The first coming is a, a coming of grace. The second coming will be a coming of glory. All right. Now what I'm telling you this morning is that those two appearings are the power plant, the engine, the momentum of the Christian life, of our putting off of the old man and putting off of the new man. All right, now, how does that functionally happen? Okay, so what, 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 what is the means or what, what's the way in which that happens? How do these two appearings drive our practical Christianity? All right, so notice in verse 12, so it says, the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. Verse 12, training us, teaching us, okay? You guys know what it is to train, right? Training us to renounce, all right? It's a word that means to say no. It's a word that means to say something's not true, to refuse consent to something, okay? So it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions, Okay? Things against God. Passions that the world gets wrapped up in. So the grace and glory of Jesus teach us to say no. To refuse to consent. To have nothing to do with ungodliness and worldly passions. And to say yes. Notice this in verse 12. And to live self-controlled, upright, godly lives in the present age. It is a marvel to me that already in Titus we've seen self-control four different times. At least, haven't we? We saw it in, in Elders uh, the qualifications of elders, we saw it in older men, we saw it in younger men, we saw it in younger women, and we, we said it was applied in, in older women. So what would that be like? This, this is like the fifth or sixth time that Titus has described self-control as a, as a characteristic of someone who believes the gospel. Okay, And, and, and so what, what is that saying? That, that's saying that the, the, these two appearings, the grace of God and the glory of God, they give us power when the impulse of anger wells up within us we have power to say no to that impulse and to say yes to grace and forgiveness and turning the other cheek, right? When the impulse of lust arises in the mind and we're drawn to be satisfied by some sensual offering, it's the power of Jesus to say no, to shout no to that impulse and to say yes to Jesus and to purity and to the pleasures of God. We are trained to live upright, godly lives in this present age. Christ's coming, Christ's return, they train us to battle in this present age, okay, right here and now. This conflict, when your feelings get trampled on, when, when, when lust calls to you from the television or from the party, okay? When you, when you could lie and gain some advantage, when you could avoid a difficult mission of God and secure a comfortable life, the grace of God and the glory of God train us to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. All right now, let's get even more specific. How does this happen? So obviously... In the Christian life, there's a looking back and there's a looking forward, all right? So if, if these two appearings are, are an engine for us, okay, then, then we need to constantly be looking back to Christ's coming, to Jesus' perfect life and his death and his resurrection, and we need to constantly be looking forward to this second appearing in glory when Christ will come and gather his saints and judge the world and establish his reign in the new heavens and the new earth, all right? So we're always looking one of those ways, both of those ways, if you will, in, in the Christian life. Now, let, let's, just, let's just give some examples of that. I, I thought, okay, I need to give some examples, but like there's literally uh, 
too many, right? Like, the, like we're always doing this, really, in everything in the Christian life. So I just picked a few that I like, okay? So, so how, how we do this? Well, <clears throat> first of all, we look back. Let's talk about looking back first, all right? So we're looking back to the cross. We're looking back to Jesus' perfect life. We're looking back to his, his resurrection. We're looking back to, to his death, his torture for us, okay? And, and, and how does that motivate us? How does that compel us? How does that captivate us? I like that word. How does that captivate us to live the Christian life? Well, Number one, his love captivates us. If you were at lunch at Lincoln a few weeks ago when Pastor Andrew was speaking, he took a verse in 2 Corinthians and, and he unpacked it really well about how does the love of God capture our heart, all right? So Romans 5, 8 says, God demonstrates his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. All right? if you're in doubt that Jesus loves you today, you are encouraged by the scriptures to look back to the first coming of Jesus, all right? The reality that, that Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins is proof that he indeed loves you, all right? Now, 2 Corinthians uh, 5.14 goes even further, and it says, for the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. So, so the love of Christ ought to control us. Now, what is he talking about? Well, basically he's saying that looking back to the grace of God and the cross convinces us that he loves us, and if he loves us, he can be trusted. Do you guys follow those two kind of steps there? Like if you're convinced somebody loved you enough to die on the cross for you, somebody loved you enough to give their son for you, somebody loved you enough to give their very life that you might live, you ought to be convinced that they love you. And if you're convinced that they love you, then you ought to trust them. You, you, you ought to know they can be trusted. In, in Romans chapter 8, verse 32, uh, Paul, Paul makes this beautiful little exchange about this very subject. He says in Romans eight thirty-two, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? I, I know it's, it's worded confusingly, but, but do you see what he's saying? It, it, the, the one who gives his son for you how, how can you doubt that he'll do a small thing for you today? If God did a huge thing for you in the past, how can you doubt that he won't come through in a small thing today? And, and, and so in looking back, we are always convinced, right? So, so we're living our present life. We're, 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 we're living in, in temptation and struggle, right? And we're always looking back saying, okay, man, I know that he loves me. He died on the cross for my sins. He proved that. And so I know I can trust him. And if I can trust him with the biggest issue, if I can trust him with my soul, then can't I trust him with my conflict, with my business, with my sexuality, with my relationships, with my Can't I trust him with these small things? I surely can. He, he will do as he said he would do. Christ's love captivates us in the sense that how can you not be changed by being loved so well? My favorite passages in the Gospels is this, um, this parable in Matthew 18 where you have this guy that's been swindling money from, from the king for years and years and years. And finally the accounting comes up and the books are read and written. And this guy owes the king 10,000 talents. It's an astronomical amount of money. There's no way he could ever pay it back in his entire life. And so he's going to be thrown in jail along with his family, and he's going to be put in debtor, debtor's prison and, and for the rest of his life and their life, right? Their life's over. 
And he falls to his knees and he pleads with the king and he says, please, just have mercy. Have mercy. He can't pay it back. There's no, hey, give me a little time. I mean, this, this is an astronomical amount of money. And, and, and the king, in mercy and grace, says, all right, you're forgiven. It's off the books. You go free. And then you remember how the story goes. The guy goes down the stairs of the palace, sees a buddy who owes him 20 bucks, grabs the guy, puts him in a headlock, punches him a couple times, give me my money now. The guy's like, just give me a few days. I don't have it right now. He drags him to the jail and throws him in jail, right? Now, at this point, everybody's like, what, right? Like, what? And that's what you're supposed to do. Like, you're supposed to read that parable and go, what? You just got forgiven $100 million, and and now you are choking your buddy out for 20 bucks? And the king says the same thing, calls him up and says, look, you know, you're you're going, you're going to go to prison if you pay the last debt. You ought to be convinced of God's love for you so much that you are changed by it. If you have received it, you ought to be changed by it. You, you ought to be empowered, looking back to the cross, ought to empower you to be a different person today. Number two, looking back, the example of Christ ought to train us, right? It ought to train us in this way. We all want to live. That's, what, that's the common denominator of everybody in this room. Everybody wants to live. We all want to really live. We're all chasing. What does it mean to really live? What does it mean to flourish? What does it mean to have joy? What does it mean to be satisfied? What does it mean to have a meaningful, fruitful life? We're all looking for that. Everybody. I was walking through the airport. Um, on uh, Wednesday, and uh, him and I passed a sign. It was, it was one of the funniest signs I've ever seen. It says, says uh, it was, I can't remember exactly the wording, but it was something to this effect. Life begins with priority boarding, okay? And, and we just chuckled about it, like, that's really living, huh? That, that's it. Like, I, I get on the plane first, and I sit there another 10 minutes, you know, and that's really living. And, and it was, was kind of cool because I sat down by a salesman. Man, there is nobody greater to ride by in the world on a plane than a salesman. Man, I, I get, I, no, you guys are shaking your head. That, that's great. Like, I, I am so bored with the people that are, you know, mask up, headphones on, and like, I, I never get to interact at all, you know? But I sit down by this lady, I was like, this is gonna be fun, you know? Because she's already selling me like microfiber claws and all stuff, you know? And, and man, I am, I am into it. Like, I am asking questions, and I, now I don't care about cleaning at all, but like, but I care about her, and she was doing a good job. And, man, I was telling, man, you're, you're a good salesman. You're doing a good job. Tell me more. I know more, you know. And, and then finally we get to, I start unpacking her life, asking her about her life. She starts sharing some of her disappointments. I'm like, you know what? I just, drove, I just walked by a sign in the airport that said, life begins with priority boarding. She laughed, you know. And I said, you know, everybody's looking for life. But so much of what the world pitches us, it's just a lie. It's, it's that dumb sign. Man, it. It doesn't satisfy career, you know, relationship. I mean, none of it, none of it satisfies. She's nodding. I'm saying, man, but let me tell you, let me tell you, Jesus is the one who satisfies. He is the treasure worth giving everything for. I got to talk a little bit. And then she said, yeah, 
let me tell you some more about this cloth. And I, I listened some more, and uh, it's, it's good. I got a catalog if you guys want to see it. I think it's good stuff. Um, it really is. And it's got all this fibers, but you don't have to use chemicals. And if I was a guy that cared about being clean, I'd, I'd probably take that, you know. But anyway, um, we all want to live. That's my point. That was a long way to get to that. We all want to live. True? And there's one man who has done it. There's one who really lived, who lived to the fullest, who lived with fullness of joy. I want to live like him. He's the perfect man. He's the one who lived in perfect fellowship with God, perfectly connected with God, perfect fellowship with others. He's the one who lived in such a way that matters for eternity. Why would you not want to be like him? The grace of God has appeared, training us. Training us. Jesus taught you how to handle conflict, didn't he? By how he handled it. He taught you how to handle accusations and abuse by how he handled it. He taught you how to, how to handle people. He taught you how to love people. He taught you how to serve people. Man, we should delight in him. All right, so, and many other things, right? So we're looking back, right? So the engine of this practical Christianity is we're always looking back to the cross, to the one who loves us, to the one that we ought to trust, to the one who lived the perfect life, and we want to be like him. We're always looking back. The grace of God has appeared, training us to say no to sin. Right? But also, verse 13, what, what else are we doing? We're waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior. And notice it's all one sin. So verse 12, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for, like it's, it's, all, it's all one thought there, waiting for the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, all right? So not only are we looking back, we're also looking ahead. We're looking ahead to this, what, what Paul calls our blessed hope. What is hope? Hope's what a lot of people don't have. Hope is this ability to look to tomorrow and to next week and to next month and to next year and the next decade and to the end. It's the ability to look ahead and say, oh my, good things are coming. Glorious things are coming. It's this anticipation and excitement about what is coming. Well, the, the definition I like to use is hope is a confident expectation of good things to come. And, and the coming of Christ will be our blessed hope, right? There will be infinite blessing to those who are joined to Jesus. Why? What will happen when Jesus comes? Well, let me just give you a little outline of what's going to happen when Jesus comes, okay? First of all, Philippians 2, verse 10 and 11 says, When he comes, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. If it is today, there will be seven and a half billion people on the planet who will be on their knees bowing to Jesus Christ, confessing that he is Lord, okay? So what? What is now hidden will be fully appeared. It will be illuminated, and everybody will know the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord. For those who believe, Psalm 1611 tells us, that in Christ's presence there will be fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. Philippians 3, 20 and 21 tells us that we will, we will receive new bodies 
resurrection bodies in which we will live in the new heavens and the new earth forever. First John 3, 2 says, when we see him, we'll become like him. We'll share in his glory. Revelation 21, 4 says, we will live with him in a place where there is no sin or sickness or pain or crying or death. But in fact, God will make all things new. Greatest verse in the Bible, I think. God's going to make all things new. Every broken, damaged, hurtful, busted thing, he's going to make new. And we will be perfected and we'll receive a reward according to how we've lived this life. And First Peter 1 tells us we have an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading. These things are coming when Christ returns. And Paul says we wait for them. It's a word that means eagerly wait. It's like, it's like when, here's the illustration I always use, especially with my kids. It's like when grandma's coming. You know, if you got little kids, it's like grandma's coming. And man, when grandma comes, man, she's bringing blessing and she's bringing fun and she's bringing excitement, you know? And, and if, if you're like us and grandma lives a long ways away, man, when she's coming, like my kids, when they were little, they would, they would wait. They would wait out in the driveway looking for grandma to come. It's that kind of waiting. Are, are, are you waiting for Jesus like that? Are you, are you waiting in the sense of, of longing for? If the answer is no, again, I, I think that's a... Let, let me read 2 Timothy 4.8 again. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. What if you don't really want him to come back? Here's the, as I talk to people, I find a certain brand of Christian, professing Christian, I say it that way, who says something like this. They believe something like this. Well, I'm a Christian and I do not want to go to hell. But I'm not really that excited about Jesus coming or heaven. Now, nobody's ever told me that, but as I talk to them, I can tell that. I can, I can tell, first of all, because a lot of them gravitate toward anything but Jesus. It's like, well, tell me what you're excited about for heaven. Well, Grandma's there, you know? Tell me what you're excited about heaven. Well, Fido's there. I don't know. I, dis- I disagree. But anyway, like maybe, I don't know. But like, really? Like, that's it? Fido? Like, I, you missed it, man. You've missed it. Think about this. If you truly long for these things, won't you be pursuing them now? Man, if if it is your heart's desire to see a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and everybody will know the truth, won't you want to do something about that right now? Like you can right now, can't you? Like, like you can live in such a way where more knees will bow and more tongues will confess and the truth will be revealed. You can reveal the truth. That's your job. That's why you're left here. You see, it seems a bit silly to say that we long for something that we will do nothing about. I say you had a military wife, and that military wife, you, you said, you know what, man, are, are you excited about your husband coming home? Oh, I am so excited. I just long for that day when, when he, the war will be over and he'll come back. Oh, man, I, have, have you written him recently? No, no, no. 
do you ever call? No, no. Do you ever text? No. FaceTime? No. You know, how come? Well, I'm, I'm busy, you know. Uh, my, my girlfriends and I go out all the time, and, you know, we, you know I, I'm starting to doubt, aren't you? Like, I'm starting to kind of wonder. And, and in the same way, man, if you tell me, man, I, I am I'm eagerly awaiting Christ's return, but I don't, I don't see any effort in your life for that to happen, it makes me wonder. If, you, if we truly long for fullness of joy at Christ's return, won't we seek joy in the Lord today? So, so fullness of joy when he comes, right? But what did he tell us? Abundant joy now. Are you, are you going after that? Are you seeking that in him? If we, if we truly eagerly await the day when, when there'll be no suffering, won't we try to alleviate suffering today? You see, all those things that are gonna happen when he returns, like the kingdom is here now. It's in you if you're a born-again believer. And, and aren't you to be bringing about that kingdom? Looking forward, one more thing. Looking forward also reminds us that there's gonna be an accounting given for our lives. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, it says, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. I, I really believe that if you, if you believe that, man, I, I tell you, if I know somebody's going to check my work now, if, if, you, if you hire me to mow, mow your lawn and you're like, hey, after you're done, I'm, you and I are going to walk around and going to make sure everything's done right. You telling me that, I, I, it's just the way I am. I, I'm, I'm going to do an especially good job and after I'm done, I'm going to walk it first because I want you to be pleased when we, I don't, I don't want to be ashamed. That's your lawn. If you believe you're going to give an account for your life, man, won't you seek to get things right? You won't want him to return and there be a mess. You be in sin. You be ashamed. Be holding on to stuff that you shouldn't be holding on to. For some, this is the heartbreaking thing. For some, the second coming will not be a joy. It will be the most horrendous of terrors. I cannot imagine that moment where you realize it's too late. I think almost everybody in this life, no matter how their life is lived, they've always, they're always, there's a thought always in their mind. It's not too late. But for that settled conviction to hit you, that it's over and it's too late. And there's never an opportunity to change this. And that you'll be separated from God forever and ever in a place the Bible calls hell. And that, that is a horror I cannot get my mind around. And what I know is true right now is it's not too late for you. You're here. You're alive. God's given you breath today. So if you need to turn from your sin and put your faith in Christ, now's your opportunity. Let's ask God for help. Holy Spirit, we ask you to work. God, we ask you, Father, to 
just draw men and women and children to yourself this morning. Jesus, we know you're coming back. God, I pray that it would be today. God, come today. We want you to come today, Lord. And God, I pray that that each one in this room would be ready today. Father, I pray that we would live in light of that blessed hope of the appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, I pray that you would enable us to look back to the cross and to see your your beautiful life and your, your beautiful death on our behalf. And God, that it would captivate us, it would capture our hearts. God, empower us, Father, to say no to sin and yes to righteousness. Father, we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.